passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, it is, uh, it is good to, to gather with you this morning. Um, today is the first day of Advent, as we've already uh, mentioned in our service. And, and even though our Advent series isn't starting until next week, um, I, I think it's, it's important for us to remind ourselves of the purpose of Advent. What is Advent? What, why is there this season um, for the church? Um, as much as we love singing Christmas music, um, it's not just to give us an excuse to sing Christmas music for about a month rather than um, just on, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So what is the purpose of Advent? One of the things that I've mentioned pretty much every single year is that the word Advent comes from, the Latin, from a Latin word that really refers to um, coming or arrival. And it specifically is focused not just on celebrating, looking back, celebrating Jesus' first coming, his, his first arrival, the incarnation. Of course, we do that. But it also, as, as Brian alluded to, um, this connection between um, Christmas and Easter, and I would, I would even say not just Christmas and Easter, but also Jesus' return. And so when we, we take this time of Advent, we look, past, we look in the past at Jesus' his first coming, so that our hearts are, are turned toward, we, we long increasingly for his, his second coming, for his return, for the time where he, in his second advent, will make all things right when he returns. And this morning, even though we aren't starting our advent series, it is, in God's providence, um, a text that, that really is an Advent text. And you, if you're looking at the text, you're reading ahead, you might say, well, how on earth is 1 Samuel chapter 31 an Advent text? 1 Samuel 31 is about the death of Saul. It's the end of his reign. Um, by the end of this chapter, Israel is in a, a desperate state. They're oppressed by the Philistines. They have no king. They have no army. Their thousands of people have fled their homes. Their homes are now occupied by these invading Philistines. It's this tragic story, and yet... It doesn't just give us a review of the reign of Saul. It also should turn our eyes, turn our hearts toward the reign of King Jesus, a true king, a faithful king, a king who does everything that Saul does not. And, and the story of 1 Samuel chapter 31 breaks into about three parts. First, it's Israel's defeat, then it's the Philistines' victory, and then finally, it's this, this weird kind of epilogue that, that remembers the past but also turns our hearts in this longing toward the future. And so that's going to be our path this morning as well. Would you pray with me as we approach God's Word? Father, we, um, we do ask that you would use this text this morning to remind us of our great need for King Jesus, and that you would give us grace toward that end, God. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to transform us increasingly into the image of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 31 if you haven't done so already. You'll notice that this morning's text is a short one, and at first reading you might say, again, how on earth does this tie in to Advent, to this season of expectation and longing for, 
for Jesus's return. And um, to, to catch the full weight of this chapter, to see what the author is doing here, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of where we've been so far in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31 has a whole lot more significance and weight when you consider what has taken place to this point in the book. 1 Samuel opens without a king. There's no king over the people of God, and it's, it's this time called the time of the judges. Judges were the leaders of God's people, and if we want to learn more about what the time of the judges was like, we, we turn to the book of Judges. And we see that things weren't all that great for the people of Israel during that time. Probably significantly for us is the final verse of the book of Judges, where we see these words, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The time of the judges is this time of increasing idolatry, ignorance of the things of God, and by extension, there's this moral bankruptcy from the people of God. And that's certainly the case even when we get to the book of 1 Samuel. The second to last judge of the people of Israel is this man named Eli. He leads the people of Israel along with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Their story is told at the beginning of 1 Samuel in chapters 2, 3, and into chapter 4. In fact, Eli's sons are so wicked that they are, and Eli is so unwilling to address their sin, that God actually pronounces judgment upon Eli's entire family, and they are put to death in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But, as we saw months ago, that judgment was not just upon Eli and his sons. We also saw that that judgment was upon the people of Israel as a whole because they were following the example of Eli and his sons in their disobedience. And so we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see that the ark is captured and the city of the priests, the city named Shiloh, is destroyed. And we go to other parts of the Bible, Psalm 78, and we see God explain why the city of the priests is destroyed. It's this judgment upon Israel. Notice what Psalm 78 says, starting in verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, for they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him to jealousy with their idols. He forsook His dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. That's the statement of before King Saul, at the beginning of the book of Judges, we have this, this low point in the period of Israel's history, this pattern that has been laid down during the time of the Judges, that under the Judges, the people of Israel as a whole are disobedient and they rebel against God. And that makes the statement that we read from the end of Judges all the more clear, make more sense to us when we hear this declaration. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You get to the end of the time of the Judges, and there is this expectation that the only thing that is going to make things right is a king. And then you get to 1 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Samuel. We have more evidence of that because the, the judges, Eli and his sons, man, they, they show us what moral bankruptcy looks like, and there's this greater need for a king. But 
As we continue through the book of 1 Samuel, we see that it doesn't just, it's not that we just need a king, we need a specific type of king, the right type of king. That's why our sermon series through 1 Samuel has been called Looking for the True King. We're not just looking for a king, we're looking for the true king. And Saul, throughout his life, from the very beginning, has not been the type of king that God's people need. He is not the true king. He lives a life of persistent, habitual rebellion and rejection of God. And that leads to this text that we read two weeks ago in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul is desperate, God pronounces judgment upon him in a way that is very similar to the way God pronounced judgment upon the failed judge of Israel, Eli, and Eli's sons earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. And that's the lens through which we have to look at 1 Samuel chapter 31 this morning. 1 Samuel 31 takes on added weight, added meaning when we compare it, uh, compare Israel at the end of Saul's reign with Israel before Saul's reign even began. Israel is looking for a true king. Saul is not that king. He has moved them nowhere. They haven't moved in the right direction. Israel isn't better off when Saul ends his reign than when Saul began his reign. It falls into the same category as the judges in those days. There was no, and I would add, true king, because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's consider 1 Samuel 31 and find out how this text describes that. text begins with a description of Israel's defeat, starting in verse 1. It says this, now the Israels were, or excuse me, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been swapping stories, um, swapping between these two stories about David and Saul. So in 1 Samuel chapter 27, we see David's lowest point in his life. He's living in this time of faithlessness. He's got no interest in the things of God. 1 Samuel chapter 28, we, we transition to Saul. Saul finds himself preparing for this battle that we're going to look at this morning. He's in desperate straits. He calls out to God in desperation. God answers him with silence. And the way I worded that is intentional. God answers him in the silence. That isn't good enough for Saul, however, so he decides to go have a seance, and God pronounces judgment on him again. We switch back in chapter 29 and 32, the story of David. God rouses David out of this slumber of of faithlessness, shows all of us that God's grace, we can't outrun it, we can't do things that is going to get us uh, disqualified for the grace of God. And by the end of chapter 30, we get to this moment where David not only receives the grace of God, embraces it, but also lives a life of faith and obedience once again. And then we get to chapter 31. Chapter 31, we go back to Saul the day after he was told in chapter 28 that he's going to die the very next day. We, we open and the scene is battle. It's a sign of God's judgment upon him. The first verse here is a summary statement of this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. They draw up battle lines. Let's go ahead and show that map. They draw up these battle lines to to fight one another in the central part of Israel, this plain called the Jezreel Valley. And the Philistines 
are victorious. Verses 2 and 3 go into detail. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So the Israelites, they're, they're driven back. The Israelites retreat up from the valley to this mountain called Gilboa. While they're retreating, Saul's sons are slain, but Saul escapes. At least he escapes temporarily, and yet Saul is not able to escape the archers, and, and he's, he's hit by a number of these arrows. He's mortally wounded by the archers, and, and we'll get to Saul in a moment, but, but notice first that there's a number of parallels here between chapter 31 and chapter 4. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines and the Israelites, they draw up and battle against one another. Back in chapter 4, we see the Israelites are defeated and they flee from before the Philistines. Back in chapter 4, we see that the sons of the leader of Israel, his name is Eli at that time, they're slain in battle just like Saul's sons are slain here. You catch what, what chapter 31 is doing. Right here at the very beginning, it's saying, you know what? History is repeating itself. Just as the Philistines crushed Israel a generation before Saul, now here at the end of Saul's reign, they're doing the exact same thing. Is Israel any better off? This king that they wanted, has he done what they wanted him to do? Now this moment, of course, is a sad moment when we consider Jonathan Jonathan, Saul's son, is, seems like one of the only people in Israel who is actually concerned with the glory of God. He lives a life of faithfulness. He regularly steps in and encourages David. He regularly points David back to the promises of God, faith in God. And yet here in this moment, he dies in battle. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we saw Jonathan's hearts when he gives up his claim to the throne, to David, and then he says that I'm going to be with you when you are seated on the throne, 1 Samuel chapter 23. And Jonathan said to David, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. This is a glorious moment as the two of them are looking forward to God's promises being finally realized. Jonathan going to be the right-hand man in the kingdom that God has, has desired. God, God has planned with David as the true king, and Jonathan dies before it ever happens. And we look at this, this moment where, where Jonathan is, he dies faithfully serving his, his dad and, and his God, and and. and we, we wonder, is, is this a tragic moment? And I would say that, that it is certainly sad, but it is far from a tragedy. Jonathan is faithful with the task that has been entrusted to him. Jonathan, every time we see him, his chief concern is the glory of God, not his own glory. He gladly cast down opportunities to seize his own glory. Honestly, Jonathan reminds me of John the Baptist, one of the most popular men of Judea in the first century around the time of Jesus. And yet, when Jesus steps onto the scene, he gladly gives the spotlight to Jesus, and he explains why when his disciples say, what on earth are you doing, man? You got to compete with Jesus. And, and John simply says, 
He must increase. I must decrease. Jonathan's death is sad, but it is not a tragedy. A tragedy is a life that has lived only for its own glory rather than the glory of God. But that's not Jonathan. Jonathan, the most important thing for him is, is rather than his own priorities, rather than his own wants, is God's plan. And while it might be sad that he dies here in this battle, in this defeat, Jonathan's life is not a tragedy because he was focused on the glory of God. Let's keep reading verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Saul can see the writing on the wall and decides to take matters into his own hands. He doesn't want to meet a dishonorable death, and so he goes to his armor bearer, this young man who was with him, who would carry his weapons and his armor, who was kind of his right man, ser- right-hand servant during this time, and says, I need you to kill me so that way I don't meet an end at the hands of the Philistines. And the armor bearer refuses. And he does so by following in the footsteps of, of Saul's first armor bearer. If you look back, 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see Saul's first armor bearer is a man named David. And David had many opportunities to kill Saul, refused. And this armor bearer is doing the exact same thing. He's saying, no, I will not put you to death here in this moment. Now, we've seen this type of request from a leader before in, in the Bible. It's not from Saul, but it is from other leaders during the time of Judges. You go back to Judges chapter 9, you'll meet this man named Abimelech. Abimelech was a wicked leader over the people of Israel, and rather than meeting a dishonorable death, he goes to his armor bearer and says, hey, I want you to go ahead and kill me, and the armor bearer does that. And again, we see this parallel here between the time of the judges and Saul. Here at his end, is Israel better off? No, he's reverting back to the time of the judges. Do you hear this message from 1 Samuel chapter 31? In those days, there was no true king. But there's a difference between Judges chapter 9 and 1 Samuel 31, and that is that the armor bearer refuses to kill him. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands. He sees that his life is as good as over, and so he decides to kill himself. The, the armor bearer decides to follow suit in some sort of honor killing here in this moment. And this is a troubling moment, and, and it brings up a lot of questions about suicide. Um, that's an important topic to discuss. I don't want to go too in-depth here. If you have the Bible app, or if you just have your bulletin and there's a link there to the sermon notes in the Bible app, there's actually a, a lengthy discussion on the topic of suicide. We looked at this in 2017. Uh, during our series on the afterlife. And so you can go ahead and check that out. Look there. But I do want to point out that here in this moment, the entire tone of 1 Samuel chapter 31 makes it really hard to see Saul's decision as a good thing. If anything, it is condemning Saul's decision. Saul, as he sees, as he's done so often in his life, he sees 
things slipping through his fingers, and so he decides to take matters into his own hands rather than turning to the Lord. And Saul takes his own life. Rather than trusting in God, he does what he's always done, making decisions for himself without any or little thought of God. Now, again, more on that in those sermon notes on the Bible app. Hopefully, I, I am a little bit more compassionate in, in those sermon notes as well. But let's go ahead and keep moving. Verse 6, verse 7 says this, Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. This is the end of Saul's reign. And where do we stand? Again, it's really hard not to see parallels here with chapter 4. Israel is again oppressed by the Philistines. People are displaced. The Philistines conquer many of their cities. Things could not look much worse for Israel than in this moment. And we're left wondering with all of these connections between the state of Israel at the beginning of Saul's reign and at the end of Saul's reign, are they better off? And again, I just want to say, in those days, there was no true king. And that's the end of Saul's reign, Israel's defeat. But the text doesn't end there. The text transitions in verses 8 to 10, looking at the Philistines' victory. What do the Philistines do after they are victorious over the Israelites, starting in verse 8? The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. So the day after the battle, the Philistines, they begin to look through all the slain of Israel to see what type of spoil they can find, and then they find the greatest prize of all, and that is Saul's body. Their treatment of Saul's body here is, is gruesome. There's no way of getting around it. They cut off Saul's head, they take all of his armor, and they place those things in the temple of their goddess Ashtaroth. This is a moment of declaration of victory. Ashtaroth was the goddess of war for the Philistines, and so by doing this, they're in effect saying, hey, you know what? Ashtaroth is greater than, more superior than the god of Israel because she has led us to victory over Saul and over Israel. Again, don't miss the, the connection here. It's earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people of Israel are defeated by the Philistines. The ark of God is captured, and what do the Philistines do with it? In chapter 5, they bring it and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And here, in this moment, it might not be as good of, 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 a, of a catch as the ark of God, but, but this connection between the king and between their god shows that this is a significant moment. And they bring the head of Saul, they bring his armor into the temple of their goddess and say, this is proof that our gods are greater than the God of Israel. This is proof that Ashtaroth is worthy of more glory than God 
Yahweh the Lord. And this is the good news that they send throughout all the land of the Philistines. And in this moment, it looks as though God has lost. His king has been slain. His army has been defeated. His people are oppressed. Their cities have been captured by the Philistines, all because of the power of their goddess Ashtaroth. And you get to this moment, and if you're reading it with the ancient Near Eastern eyes here, you get to the end of verse 10, it's almost as if the text is saying, who could possibly stand against the might of the Philistines and their goddess of war? Of course, we're given more to the story. Not only do the Philistines put his armor and his head in their temple, they also place the bodies of Saul and his sons as a warning to the Israelites on the walls of Beit Shan, this, this captured city. See, the, the Philistines are not only declaring their glory to one another of their God, they're also declaring it to Israel and saying, here is proof that our goddess is stronger, is more worthy of glory than your God is. Now, we've been reading First Samuel. If you've been reading 1 Samuel, you know that the, the, the good news of the Philistines is, is completely false. This interpretation of events could not be further from the truth. Saul's death, Israel's defeat, is not because of the greatness of Ashtaroth, but actually, paradoxically, it's because the greatness of the God of Israel. Israel's God is this God who orchestrates the death of Saul in response to decades of rebellion from Saul. And for the reader who is paying attention in 1 Samuel to this moment, the Philistines' actions, as despicable as they may be, are a declaration not of the glory of Ashtaroth, but a glory of, of Yahweh who, who will not be mocked, who will not tolerate it when people rob glory from him of this judgment who, what, that comes upon those who persist in rebellion against this great God. And so, paradoxically, the victory of the Philistines is actually a declaration of the glory of the God of Israel who will not be trifled with. And yet the text doesn't end there. It's almost as if 1 Samuel can't, can't bear to end with this this moment that, that seems to appear that, that Ashtaroth won. And so we're given like an epilogue here in these last couple verses where, where the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they come and they, they rescue Saul's body, the bodies of his sons as well. And, and in doing this, we are told to remember the past while look forward and long for the future. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant, valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. 
And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So a, a group of men from the town of Jabesh-Gilead, which would have been located about 13 miles away to the south and to the east of Beit Shan, they hear of what has happened to Saul's body, the bodies of his sons, the great disgrace shown to them. And so they decide to, to take this great risk. They one night go, all in one night, recover the bodies uh, yet the bodies are so disfigured that they decide to burn them and, and bury the bones. And, and Saul is laid to rest in Jabesh-Gilead. And this epilogue, it, it kind of seems to, to end in a weird spot for us. And so we ask, well, why is this being told to us? What is the significance of this moment? Well, Saul had a special place of affection for the men and women of Jabesh-Gilead. It was undoubtedly Saul's finest hour all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, shortly after he becomes king, Saul rouses the people of Israel to, to go to Jabesh-Gilead, deliver the people of Jabesh-Gilead from the armies of this man named Nahash of the Ammonites. Story again found in chapter 11. Read these words. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And the Israelites came into the midst of the camp in the morning, Watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 1 Samuel chapter 11 tells us about Saul's finest hour. He does exactly what a king should do, delivering the people of Jabesh Gilead. And do you catch why? Notice how he does this. The answer is found at the beginning of verse 6 in chapter 11. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. So here in chapter 31, we are drawn back to this moment in chapter 11, the, the finest moment of Saul, where he is the king of God's people. He's empowered by the Spirit of God, and he works a great salvation for the people of God. And the book of 1 Samuel ends by reminding us of this moment, not because this is the defining moment of Saul's life or his reign. Unfortunately, it's the, the exception rather than the rule. But our eyes are drawn back to it as a reminder, after all of these failures, all of the callbacks in 1 Samuel chapter 31, to persistent failure from Israel in the past and Israel now with Saul. It's a reminder, you know what? Saul is not the chosen king. Before Saul, Israel was disobedient. Now, Israel is disobedient. Before Saul, Israel was oppressed by the Philistines. Now, Israel is oppressed by the Philistines. The parallels between Saul's death and Israel before Saul remind us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet, by turning our eyes back to Saul's finest moment in chapter 11, 
We're reminded that we don't just need a king. We need a true king. And this entire book is looking toward that true king. And the text ends by reminding us when Saul acted that way. By being empowered by the Spirit of God. And that's why this text is an Advent text. Because even as it looks at the failure of King Saul, a time where there may have been a king in Israel, but he was not a true king, chapter 31 ends with assurance that God is not done. That this is not the end of the story. That's what the New Testament makes clear. That's why the Christmas season here is a celebration. That's why it's a big deal for us, because we know that God is not done. While Saul failed persistently, God is not done. His story does not end with Saul. Saul might have worked one great moment of salvation for the people of God through the power of, spirit, of the Spirit, and yet Jesus lives his entire life in the power of the Spirit to accomplish God's will, this great salvation for the people of God from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. And this Jesus is the very Son of God whose kingdom will be established forever. This Jesus is the true King that we are waiting for. Just consider the beginning of Luke. Luke is a very famous book when it comes to Christmas for good reason. We're going to skip over the, the story of his birth and start with his baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately after that, Jesus is sent into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days. And it's worth noting, if you look at Luke chapter 4, that he does all of this full of the Spirit. After the temptation, Jesus returns to Galilee again. Luke chapter 4 tells us that he does this in the power of the Spirit. And when he arrives at Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, the beginning of his ministry. He declares it as beginning with a text from the book of Isaiah, and he this text intentionally about the Spirit of God resting upon him to accomplish God's purposes and plans in the world. Luke chapter 4, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. First Samuel 31. While we remember the past, our eyes are drawn to the future. 
to a true king, empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish God's purposes in the world. While we remember the failure of Saul, we long for a king who is coming to make all things right, a king who is coming to establish a perfectly good, perfectly just kingdom. And you know, at Advent, we do the exact same thing. We look to the past, we remember Christmas, we remember Jesus' first coming, we remember that He took on flesh in order to save sinners from their sin, we remember the good news of the declaration, it was finished on the cross, we remember the incredible promise of the empty tomb, a promise of this forever kingdom, of this life without pain or sickness or death forever because of the presence of a loving God, but our eyes don't stop there. No, our eyes are drawn as we remember the past toward the future, toward our forever home, to our forever kingdom. We know this world is not the way that it is meant to be, and we long for a second advent, the return of our King, King Jesus. This text, you could say all of 1 Samuel, is just a simple declaration that King Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. Someone asks you someday, what's that book, 1 Samuel, about? That's what you can tell them. Ultimately, it's about King Jesus and that he's the one that we've been waiting for. That's what we celebrate at Christmas as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, this king who will pay the price to fix a broken creation. He's come. The king who will establish a perfect kingdom has not just come, but he will come again. He's the one we have been waiting for. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for the promise of Advent. For the promise of what you accomplished on the cross and how it will one day be fully realized you return. And this Christmas, we do ask that you would help us to not just remember what you have done in taking on flesh, but look toward the future with great hope and expectancy and confidence that you will return again because you are the one we have been waiting for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.